Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples, from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me. And made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain, and I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord, and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Heavenly Father, we pray to you this morning. Lord, your word will not return void, and I pray that I would be faithful to this, the words of your prophet, that you gave him revelation, and that you would open the ears of your people so that we may glorify you in both the speaking and the hearing. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, what a great gift that we have as the people of God, that He has not only given us this, His revelation, Old and New Testament, but He's preserved that Word for thousands of years amidst a variety of events, many of which were calculated to destroy that which we have so readily accessible today, many of us with multiple copies of God's Word. And I bring this up just to show how important all of Scripture is, that God has preserved all of it and brought it to us today. The past few weeks, Pastor Kaiser, uh, a couple weeks ago, he talked about baptism and the unity of the covenant. And last week, he talked about the emergent church. And it got me to thinking about how important all of Scripture is. And if we, if we tend to highlight one portion of it or another, or we seek outside of God's Word for His will on our life without comparing what we feel or experience to His Word, how we miss so much of the the grace and the blessings of Scripture in its unity as He brings it to us today. But we know by the grace of God that we have been given hope through our salvation. We have been brought into that covenant, that covenant of our spiritual forefathers, those that went before us. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to look back What did they expect to come forth in the future? What were the promises? What were the blessings, the teachings? What were the prophecies that God had given to them? Because they are a part of us. They are our spiritual forefathers. And so we need to look at what these are. At least every once in a while, concentrate. Why did God give them these promises and how are they ours today? Because they were God's gift to those covenant people. They are God's gift to us today. Paul said in Ephesians 2:12 and 13 that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice Paul's words. He says we were without hope because we were without God. And that is the place of all 
who stand outside of the covenant. But he just doesn't leave us in that place of hopelessness. He tells us that in Christ, he has brought us near. Christ has brought us hope. He has brought us into the covenant. He has made us children of Abraham. And so we are heirs of the same promises. And that's kind of paraphrased from Galatians 3.29. So having been brought near, having been brought, brought into those blessings and promises, we have the privilege, and I would say the responsibility now, of looking back and saying, what were the expectations of our forefathers when they looked and saw what and who the Messiah would be and what his call would be? So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the words of one of these Old Testament prophets, Isaiah. I believe he's rightly called the evangelical prophet. I've also heard him called the St. Paul of the Old Testament because he was given by God so prophetically clear a picture of who that Messiah would be. Now, by the end of the sermon today, my goal is that when we look through this prophecy of Isaiah, it will challenge you in three ways. First, that you would have an outpouring of um, thankfulness that God has extended his grace to the Gentiles, for that is the case of probably most of us in this room today, so that we are now part of the Abrahamic covenant. Second, it will open your eyes to what did the Old Testament saints believe would be the calling, the work, and the extent of the Messiah. And lastly, we will see what our own call is and how it is intertwined with that of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. So we must start as Isaiah does. What is his intended audience? Read with me from the first part of verse 1. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you people from afar. Now, it's clear right off the bat that Isaiah is speaking to a much wider audience than he's been speaking to throughout many of his prophecies in uh, the earlier part of Isaiah. He's speaking to more than just the Jewish people here. He uses the word coastlands. It is translated in other um, translations as isles, countries, or islands. And that picture draws an immediate contrast with the idea of land, temple, city, often things that describe Israel. So we know he's talking about much more than just Israel here. His audience is a little bit bigger. Now Isaiah, interestingly enough, uses the word coastlands 12 times a lot more than anybody else in the Old Testament, and that word coastlands is dominated in use by the prophets. And I think that's important. I think we can look back at the mosaic description of Noah's son Japheth's line that's given in Genesis 10.5. We read there, From these the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Now important to reference here is that just prior to the statement about the coastland peoples, Noah had given his curse on Canaan and his blessings on Shem and Japheth and indicated a close tie that would come between these two different lines, that of the Israelites and that of the Gentiles. And this idea of Gentile inclusion in the covenant will play heavily, as we will see in this later part of Isaiah's prophecy here. Now we'll read the second part of that again. And take heed, you peoples, from afar. 
Isaiah once again is emphasizing that there is a expansion of his audience. There's a unique audience he's talking to here. He uses the phrase, you people from afar. Now hopefully this will trigger something in our mind. Pastor Kaiser mentioned it a couple weeks ago talking about baptism. Peter's words in Acts 2.39 where he emphasizes that the promises of the covenant were available to his audience, the immediate Jews in his presence, their children, and to those who were afar off. The same words given there. Once again, emphasizing this idea of Gentile inclusion in the covenant. But the opening verse here of Isaiah does more than just highlight the scope of the audience because it, like the rest of Christian life, demands action on behalf of those that are reading and hearing the word. Notice what he says. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples, from afar. It's just more than a mere listening. There's something that he is demanding action in or thought about. And so we have to keep that in mind as we read through the rest of this passage because there are so much beautiful pictures that Isaiah gives us about prophecies concerning the Messiah. But there's also something else that he's telling us right here in the beginning that we will have to listen to and to heed. And so that's something we'll have to pay attention to as we work through these short six verses. So now let's work on to the next part of verse 1. I've divided this prophecy of Isaiah, these six verses, into three calls. And we'll go through each one here. And we'll start with the first one. In the second half of verse 1, we read, The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. Now this first call, before we talk about it specifically, generically speaking, a call is important because we we know that no man without judgment may take upon himself an office of God without that call of God on his life. The author of Hebrews points out to us in fulfillment of this that even Christ himself was subject to the call of the Father. We read read from Hebrews, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. Now specifically though as to this call here, why does Isaiah use these words concerning the womb, the, coming, the calling in the womb? And I believe he does this because he is linking together the future Messiah with others who were called in a very similar way that God had called others in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let's see from Jeremiah 1.5. How was Jeremiah's call? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nation. And as for Paul in Galatians 1.15, his call, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. And what we see in, the, in all of these calls, the one in Isaiah and the one of Jeremiah and then of Paul, is the will of the Father going forth and calling to him, that person, to his office. And we saw the fulfillment of that in Christ, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And so in this first verse, we see the audience of his message. We see an expectation of action on the part of his people. And then we see a prophetic insight into the calling of the Messiah, which was fulfilled by Christ when he was commissioned by the Father, both in that verse in Hebrews and then throughout 
the Gospels. And so we move on to the the meat of the first call here. Read with me in verse 2. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. In this short verse, Isaiah provides us two extremely valuable word pictures describing the way in which the Messiah's word and his work would penetrate into the world. Now, the first picture we're pretty familiar with throughout the New Testament, that of the sword. A sword is something that we normally think of, not as something that sits up on a wall and that we can look at. A sword is something powerful. It's slicing. It's penetrating. It's aggressive. The sword is not passive, and the Messiah is not seen as acting passively in this world through his word. Hebrews 4.12 states, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, living and powerful is the sword. Revelation 1.16, He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Strength. Another picture there. Revelations 2.16. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And now turn with me because I'm going to read and somewhat paraphrase through Revelation 19, verse 15 to 21. What I want you to, to get the picture of here is the power of Christ, the power of the sword going forth from his mouth and how powerful that sword is pictured in this description by John. Starting in verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And look at now this next picture of those starting to stand up against the sun, and then what happens to them through his word. Verse 19, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him, who sat on the horse and against his army, The beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The power, the strength, his word defeating all enemies. The same holds true in our day today. That is how powerful the Word of God is. And we can never forget that as we come and read His Word each day. Now all of these um, quotes that I went through, these other parts of the Bible, I believe they show us that this prophecy that Isaiah saw in the future would come to pass in our Messiah. They show our Lord pouring forth in spiritual conquest through His Word, His truth, and His doctrine which proceeded forth from his mouth in fulfillment of Isaiah's 
prophecy. But Isaiah does not just describe him as a sharp sword. He describes him as a polished shaft. First, he is polished because he is the sinless son of God. He is perfect in every way. Peter describes Christ in 1 Peter 1.19 as the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. But he is not just spotless because we have another picture here, a different implement of war this time, a shaft or an arrow, something that travels far and pierces sure, especially in the hands of a sovereign God. And Scripture is not short of highlighting how that arrow corresponds to the work of the Messiah. Psalm 64, 5-7, we see the arrow piercing the enemies of God to strike them down. They encourage themselves in an evil manner. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? They devise iniquities. We have perfected a shrewd scheme. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. Again in Psalm 45, 5, your arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. The people's fall under you. And lastly, Zechariah 9.14, then the Lord will be seen over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go from the whirlwinds to the south. And so Isaiah, as a prophet, provides us two ways in which we would see the Messiah carry forth his work. First, as a sword, his word would penetrate and drive into the deepest parts of man. It would lead to salvation and correction for those who were of the elect, and if met with resistance, it would lead to the death of the impenitent. Secondly, as an arrow, his judgment would strike far and wide for those upon whom his judgment was due. In both cases, though, the prophet leads us to the only conclusion that can be drawn, that the Messiah is going to be a king, and it's his right to extend and to defend that kingdom through his word and his wise rule. Now before I leave this, this first calling in this um, verse 2, I have to at least talk about something I, I skipped over real close. After each description of Christ as a sword and as an arrow, there is a phrase that the prophet puts in about the shadow of his hand hiding him or in his quiver, he has hidden me. And when I went and read over different commentators about this passage, there were three main thoughts they had. One of them was that this hiding was the idea of the incarnation, the timing when the sun would come. Other commentators believed that it was the Gentile inclusion into this covenant that would be uh, brought forth more fully. That is what is being hidden. But I believe the translation that fits uh, more exact with this passage is that this hiding is a hiding of the sun, a protection, a hedge, as the sun went about and did his work in the world. And the reason I believe that is because Isaiah not only used this phrase here, he uses a very similar phrase in Isaiah 51.16, where he describes the covering of one in the shadow of his hand in a protective way. And so while Isaiah uses the word hidden to describe various different things throughout his prophecies, in these two specific spots, he talks about some person being hidden. So I, what I believe here is that we are talking about God's sovereign watch over his son 
after he was commissioned to do his work in the world. Now, there's also one more reason why I believe this to be the case, and we'll get back to that at my conclusion. So I'll just have to hold you in suspense there for a little bit until we get there. All right, so that's the first call. Now we're going to move on to the second call. From verse 3, we'll go ahead and uh, read the first part of verse 3. And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now this call is a little bit different from the first one. This time it's the description of the Messiah as a servant, which we know is fulfilled often throughout the New Testament. But he's not just a servant. He is the servant who will glorify God perfectly in all he does. Notice also, this servant is called Israel, in whom he will be glorified. The Messiah will be the true Israel. Israel itself, the nation, could never glorify God perfectly. They are often talked about in the New Testament as having uh, committed spiritual adultery. But here Isaiah says, there will be a servant. He will be true Israel. And that, we know, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And not only is it fulfilled in him, but Paul talks about the children of Israel. So those who are in Christ are a part of true Israel, and therefore in Christ we can bring glory to God, not outside of him, in Christ. And so we move down from that call into the next part. We'll read verse 4. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. Now the prophet Isaiah here describes what upon first inspection may seem to be words of discouragement considering or concerning the work of the Messiah. But I would say instead they are just prophetic words of what the Messiah would encounter in his work among the children of Israel. Such a prediction was not unusual for Isaiah. If you remember back, he had heard very much the same thing in his call when God called him. He writes in Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, and he said, and God said, Go and tell his people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return and be healed. And so Isaiah, he's very familiar with this idea that the people would not be receptive to his words. And so he tells us in this prophecy that the Messiah would seem to fare no better, at least from outward circumstances. Christ even echoed this sentiment of a people unwilling to listen to the words of their Redeemer. He stated in Matthew 23, 37, and 38, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And you know, it would seem, if we took just a quick inspection of the events in the New Testament and the Gospels, that maybe the Messiah was unsuccessful. You know, his herald, John the Baptist, killed. His disciples fled at his hour of need. Himself killed. The whole city, the religious leaders, the Gentile rulers, even the people that had cried Hosanna, turning against him. But Isaiah doesn't let us stop there with just looking at outward circumstances. For he reminds us that we have to look 
at where our reward ultimately lies. Read the second half of verse 4 again. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. He tells us that our reward is found ultimately in the Lord. And this happens when we are working faithfully within the will of God, faithfully within that call of God. Christ tells us the very same thing in John 5.30. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And then he reminds us that our reward comes through him. Revelations 22.12 And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And so we are reminded, as we often need to be, because we tend to be short-sighted people, we do not have the godly, eternal view that we should have, that just because it seemed as if Christ's work was in vain did not necessarily mean that that was the case. Now, we have the benefit of being able to know and to look back to read the New Testament and to read in history that these events all happened according to the will and the plan of the Father, even in the darkest of times, if you looked at it at one step in time. And today we know the kingdom of Christ grows throughout the world. His work was not in vain. And it's an aid today to remind us that our efforts glorify God when they are carried out according to His revealed will, whether there are immediate fruits or lack of fruits at any given time. Remember this, faithfulness, not numbers, is the test of whether we truly desire to find our reward solely in the Lord, solely in the Lord as the Messiah is said to have found His reward. Faithfulness is first, not what we see in this world. Let us never become content with what we see around us. Let us strive for faithfulness first. And so now we'll move on to verse 5 here. Read with me. This is the third and last call. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Now, just to recap a little bit, the first call identified the Messiah in a very similar way as other prophets. He would be called by the will of the Father. The second call identified him as the true Israel. Now, this last call gives us a glimpse into the extent of the Messiah's work. And we see that what Isaiah has written here did come true in the New Testament. I'll just pull out two examples. Matthew 10, 5 through 6 is where Jesus is sending out his 12 apostles. And he tells them not to go into the land of the Gentiles, not to go to the Samaritans, but to go to the lost sheep of Israel. And then in Matthew 15:21 through 28, this is the story of the Gentile woman who had come to Christ to have her daughter healed. And he told her that he was sent to save the children of Israel. Eventually she continues on, we know, and he rewards her faith. But twice there, that phrase is put forth that he was sent to save the children of Israel. And that is what Messiah is saying here. Part of his call is to bring Jacob back to him. And we see that fulfilled in the New Testament. And now I have to at least take a little bit of time here to talk about verse 5 because I, I am reading from the New King James Version. 
And I know there are perhaps people who are reading from the King James Version, and you're wondering what kind of apostate Bible am I reading from that I've changed the words there so it says something totally different than your Bible. And that's why I need to talk about this. But either translation that I'm going to talk about here, neither one changes the overall thrust of what Isaiah's prophecy is, is that the extent of the Messiah's work would be expanded. Now, I read the King James Version earlier, and it said, So that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. But for the following reasons, I would defer to the translation used in the King James Version for for you that have it. It states, And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. So basically what is done here is the New King James Version and almost every other translation has taken out the word not and just said so that Israel is gathered to him. And it's important to remember here they did this for a reason. In the original manuscript, the word not is there, and that's one of the reasons why I defer to the King James Version translation in this aspect. But the New King James Version, the translators, they were trying to maintain faithfulness, theological faithfulness, to the extent of the Messiah's work, and there were margin notes in the text that, that stated that perhaps that word not should not be there. So it's not like they just went off on a tangent and took that word out of there. They did have a reason and a margin note for it, but but I believe that the King James Version is more accurate, stays true to the text, as well as it parallels what we saw in verse 3 and 4. And oftentimes the Hebrew writers will, uh, when they're doing their statements, they will write them in sort of a parallel fashion. Remember in in verse 3 and 4, it talked about laboring in vain, and then just reward being with the Lord. Now in this passage, it talks about the same thing. So that Israel is not gathered to him, but I shall still be glorious in the eyes of my Lord. Very similar. And for those two reasons, that it's in the original text and that it more parallels the earlier call, I would defer to the King James Version translation. And I just bring that up because I know we are all working with different translations in here, and I wanted to be sure when you read that to explain why that was. But in either case, uh, they are still emphasizing the glory and reward that follow from faithfulness to God and that the extent of the Messiah's work would be expanded when we get to verse 6. And so it is in verse 6 that we turn to now. Let's read that. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. A beautiful passage there ending out this prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah three times mentions this very similar phrase about bringing light to Gentiles and salvation to the ends of the earth. He mentions it here in Isaiah 42 verse 6 and Isaiah 60 verse 3. And now I'd like you to turn also to Luke 2.32 where we will see the fulfillment of of this prophecy. As we turn to Luke 2, this is where we see Simeon has been granted by the Spirit to hold the Messiah in his hands before he passes away. 
I'll actually start in verse 29. Luke 2, verse 29. This is Simeon speaking here. As he blesses God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. We see the fulfillment of this prophecy. And now we've come full circle from Isaiah. In the beginning, if you remember, he's talking to the coastlands. Listen to me, O coastlands. And then he goes through the various calls of the Messiah. And here we get to the end. And we see that the Messiah would be not just the Savior of Isaiah's people in their covenant. He was going to be sent to the entire world to be their Savior. He was going to be sent to bring us near, to give us hope, to bring us close to God, to bring us into the covenant, because He is going to be a light to us, the Gentiles. He is going to be salvation to the ends of the earth. And so we come full circle from listening to Him and seeing why we should listen. Why is this passage important to us? Not just that we read about the fulfillment, but what were the expectations and how beautifully they were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, the Messiah of all people of the covenant. And so right now I'm going to commit one of the major crimes of sermon preparation and that that was kind of the climax of the passage, but there is one more thing that I have to talk about, so... You just have to forgive me for bringing you up there because I'm going to bring you up again one more time because I'm not complete with what I promised you in the beginning of the sermon. I promised you three things. First, I said, hopefully you have a renewed sense of graciousness that God has sent his son to save Gentile as well as Jew. And we saw this in this passage. It's just beautiful about how it was not enough that he was sent just to save the Jewish people, not just to bring Jacob back to him, but to save the people from the ends of the earth, all the elect there. Secondly, I said we would look at what were the Old Testament callings and work that would be expected of the Messiah. And we looked through that, how his word would go out like a sword and an arrow. And so I fulfilled those two steps. But the third step was I would show you what we are called to take heed or to take action in as the coastlands because even though we're in Omaha here, we are part of of the coastlands as far as this passage is concerned. Now, it's probably occurred to some of you here as we read verse 6. What does it say there at the end? I will give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And yet we know that Christ did not physically accomplish this during his incarnation on earth. But we know that such a salvation such a spreading of the word as it states here is as sure as the word of God. It would go out as a sword. It would go out as an arrow. And so where do we find this fulfillment? And this is where the New Testament gives us great insight as to how we as Gentile believers in the 21st century fit into this piece of Old Testament prophecy. How do we sitting in these chairs today, how are we being spoken to by Isaiah that we wrote so long ago? We know it's because of the inspiration of God. But let me read from what Luke says in the book of Acts. Listen closely to these words concerning Paul and Barnabas. 
Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, he's speaking to the Jews here, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Listen closely. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as been appointed to eternal life believed. Listen to those words again, how they parallel Isaiah. The Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And what Luke does here is show us how we are to treat this prophecy of Isaiah. He says, yes, it applies to the Messiah fully because that's where all the prophecies apply to in their most fullest. But, he says, I am now going to apply it directly to two servants of God, two men who were in Christ Jesus, in true Israel, Paul and Barnabas. And he applies the exact same words spoken of the Messiah here to two people of God. And so in the same way Luke applies it to them, I would say we can apply the same verse to us. We have been given as a light to the Gentiles. We are sent to be salvation to the ends of the earth through the command of Christ and as we are in Christ. And so this is how Isaiah is speaking to us today. And Christ emphasized this call, not in the same words, but in Matthew 28, 18, 18 through 20, familiar passage. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And so we see in this third call, Luke had applied it to us, to Gentiles. And so when we read back from that call and we start working our way back through the other calls then, when we're out there in the world and our work seems to be in vain, our reward needs to be solely and surely with the Lord, as he said in the second call, and our work is with our God. When you're feeling as if you're working as you can in the will of the Father and things do not seem to be going well for you, this prophecy applies to you as well because you are working in God. You are being faithful to Him. And remember I said faithfulness, not the immediate fruits or lack of fruits, shows that we desire for our reward to be solely in the Lord, not in the things we see around us. We don't want our reward to be of this world. We want our reward to be of God. And then the first call that we had there says the Messiah's mouth would be like a sword and it would be a polished shaft. And as we go out, in Christ, as we take forth his word, his doctrine, his teachings, we go out and that word penetrates to the heart of man as a sword and it penetrates as an arrow as need be. All of these apply to us as well as we work in the Messiah for whom these prophecies spoke about. And so, even though Isaiah wrote so long ago, he was speaking to every one of us who are in Christ today. This is our call from our Savior. And it is through Him that we go forth 
and we bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Are you prepared for His Word today? Are you prepared to hear the prophecy and the calling of Isaiah about the Messiah and that our Messiah, Jesus Christ, then passed on to His people of the covenant? Listen, O coastlands, to me. But today, it's listen, Dominion Covenant Church, to me. And take heed, you peoples from afar. Let us be a light to the Gentiles. Let us be an example of Christ's salvation to the ends of the earth. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the beauty of your revelation, the words that you gave to those prophets who stood by waiting for you in the Old Testament. Lord, they were able to see afar off the truth and the beauty of your Son that you sent in the world to save us. And yet we are so blessed that we have the example of your Son, we have his life, we have his death that saves us and brought us near to you. It is only through your Son that we are brought from far away, that we are brought near, brought into the covenant, into the blessings and the promises that you have given us. And now your call rests on us because we are your children. So let us go forth and do your will. Be faithful to all that you command us in your scripture. And it's in your Son's precious blood that we pray. Amen.